continuing our series this morning, and we're talking about the story of God, and particularly the church. So if it's your first time at Refuge, uh, welcome. This is just one piece of um, a long series. This is actually part five in the story of God. Um, and as a part of this um, year, we, we've... Um, what is the word I'm looking for? We have dedicated, there it is, this year to reading and studying the Bible. Because what's going on in the church is we have uh, not just uh, a biblically illiterate culture. Uh, people in our culture have never heard of Jesus, never heard the gospel, never read the Bible. But also in the church, we have tons of Christians who have never read the Bible. They've never even read a whole book in the Bible that's made up of many books. And so we're dedicating this year to know the Bible firsthand, to read through it, to discuss it, and then to, on Sunday mornings, to preach through some of the uh, major themes and characters and, um, yeah, doctrines of the Bible. So we spent um, the first month of January looking at the Bible specifically, what it is, what it claims uh, about itself, its authority, its accuracy, its purpose, And I don't know if you guys remember this, but in our teaching on what the Bible is, we talked about how the Bible is, is first of all, a story. It's the story of God, and it's the the true story of the world and humanity from God's point of view. And I know that when we often use the word story, we, we probably think more like bedtime story. We think of the word fairy tale, but that's not what we mean when we say that the Bible is a a story or a grand story. Uh, Rather, we mean that it is this grand narrative that gives meaning, shape, and purpose to our lives. And the story of the Bible is a story about creation and then all this stuff that happens in the middle to new creation. And these are are, are just the, the bookends of the Bible and of the story of God. God made this world and he made it good. He made it to be his dwelling place that he would be king over it, that humanity would co-labor with him in making the the earth his dwelling place. And, And we know, or we've been taught rather, because of sin, that that has been tainted, that corruption has come in, that that plan of God has gotten off track. But God determined to to still bless the world, to still make it his dwelling place. And so he began a plan in Abraham and then through the descendants of Abraham that he would bring a rescuer, a redeemer into the world. And last week we looked at that redeemer, that it's Jesus and how everything in the Bible is leading up to him, that he is the key that unlocks all the promises and purposes of God. So this morning we're going to continue that grand story by looking at the church and this is the part of the story that we've been talking about this, that the, God gives us the story so that we can take the story up ourselves, so that we can find ourselves as a part of this story. And this is the part, really, Act 5, that we are invited into. As the church, we are invited to take up God's mission to the world. God's mission that was started in Jesus is carried on by the church and will culminate with a new heaven and a new earth. I love what N.T. Wright says about this. He talks about how reading the Bible is essential to, to know and to assimilate the story. Just listen to this. He says, when we read Scripture as Christians, 
we read it precisely as people of the new covenant or the new creation. We do not read it, in other words, as a flat, uniform list of regulations or doctrines. We read it as the narrative in which we ourselves are now called to take part. We read it to discover the story so far and also how it's supposed to end. Or to put it another way, we live somewhere between the end of the book of Acts and the closing scene of Revelation. If we want to understand scripture and to find it doing its proper work in and through us, we must learn to read and understand it in light of that overall story. The Bible as a whole thus does what it does best when we read from the perspective of new creation. And this is the part I want to tune in if you haven't yet. And it is designed not only to tell us about the work of new creation, as though from a detached perspective, not only to provide us with true information about God's fresh resurrection life, but also to foster that work of new creation in the churches, groups, and individuals who read it, who define themselves in terms of the Jesus they meet in it, who allow it to shape their lives. The Bible is thus the story of creation and new creation, and it is itself, through the continuing work of the Spirit who inspired it, an instrument of new creation in human lives and communities. You you hear what he's saying? I know that that's a lot. But what he's saying is the purpose of, of Scripture and the purpose of the work of Jesus is that now we would take it up, that we would live that new creation that Paul describes in, in 2 Corinthians 5, that we would live that out. And that this would be a testimony, that this would be signs and, and pictures, a vision of what God wants to do for all humanity and what God will eventually do to this world. We are God's instruments of new creation in human lives and communities. Now, as Christians, we read, study, and discuss the story of God in order to take it up, or in order to be taken up by it, that our individual stories would find their meaning and purpose and resolution in the story of God and his mission to the world. I think, in short, this is what it means to be the church. That's what it means to be a Christian, is to take up the story of of God in Jesus Christ. And so that's really what we're going to focus on this morning. Uh, I said this last week, we're taking like huge themes of the Bible, right? Like we, we did Jesus and I mean, let's be honest, I did not talk for 45 minutes, more like an hour. But you know, an hour is not enough to, to discuss all the ways in which Jesus fulfills scripture and to discuss all the ways in which scripture is leading up to and pointing to him and that all the tension that sin brought into the world is resolved in him. It, it's not enough time. Uh, Nikolai joked about this, but I mean, you can cover the fall basically, you know, in Genesis 2 and 3, but then it takes you know, Genesis 4 through Malachi to describe, you know, everything leading up to Jesus, and then some to describe Jesus. And then, of course, you have the same problem with the church. In, in what way do we talk about the church and in the purposes of God? I mean, we could talk about the church being the body of Christ. We could talk about the church being um, 
the temple of God filled with his spirit, that it's the place where heaven and earth come together and people meet with the living God. We could talk about how it's kingdom citizens that are representing the kingdom of God here on earth by what they say and what they do. We could talk about so many things about the church. We, and we do need to talk about these things, just how our lives function with each other, how we work together to bring about God's plans and purposes. We don't have time to do all this this morning. And so I'm going to basically stick to one theme, and that is the theme of kingdom. Because I think it better fits the narrative in which um, we're following on on Sunday morning. So the first thing I want to talk about this morning, I totally forgot to read the Bible. We're going to do that in a second. I got a lot of things going on in my head, I guess. Um, But we're going to talk about how Jesus commissions his people, and the church spreads the good news of the rule of Jesus. That is really the first thing we see. So Acts chapter 1, verses 3 through 8 say this, and and this is the second part of Luke, right? The gospel according to Luke. After his suffering, Jesus presented himself to them, the disciples, and gave many convincing proofs that he was indeed alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days, so it wasn't just once, right? Many times, and spoke about the kingdom of God. That's significant. Now, on one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around Jesus and asked him, Lord... Is it now that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus said to them, It isn't for you to know the time or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So after Jesus' resurrection, as he's spending time with his disciples, he, he, he continually talks to them about these two things, the kingdom and the spirit. And we're, we know, as the story goes on in, in the book of Acts, that not many days after this, the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that anointed Jesus for the work of redemption he accomplished, came upon all those who believed and trusted in Jesus as Messiah. And that day, the people of God, the church, was born. Now, as I said a moment ago, we have many different opinions on what church is and what it's supposed to be. Sometimes they're more practical. We think about, you know, church is a good facility. It has great, encouraging, positive services, right? It's about passionate worship gathering. It's a great Sunday school. It's great activities for my family and a wholesome environment to bring up my kids in. Or, or we might think a little more biblically, hopefully, um, along the lines of a community of people following Jesus and the teaching of the Bible. But when Jesus taught the early disciples, the church, about the implications of his work, he focused on two things, the kingdom and the spirit. John Stott writes uh, in his commentary on Acts, it appears that Jesus' two main topics between his resurrection and his ascension were the kingdom of God and the spirit of God. It seems probable that he related them to one another. 
just as the prophets do. When God establishes the kingdom of the Messiah, they said, he will pour out his spirit. This generous effusion and universal enjoyment of the spirit will be one of the major signs and blessings of his rule. And indeed, the Spirit of God will make the rule of God a living and present reality to his people. So, as Jesus is talking about the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom, and the Spirit, the power in which the kingdom of God is going to be manifest now, the disciples are like, okay, yeah, are you going to set up the kingdom in Israel, is that right? Like the Bible actually says you're going to do? And the disciples here, they're still thinking nationalistically, which is totally understandable. You read Psalm 2, you read Psalm 72, you read Psalm 110. I mean, you read in the prophets, there, there's all this talk about how the, you know, the true king Messiah will sit on his throne in Jerusalem. From there, he will rule the world and the nations will come to him and worship him. And so they're thinking just in those Terms, like very biblical terms, like, okay, Jesus, are you going to do this now? Are you going to end the exile now by crushing Rome and ushering in your earthly kingdom? And Jesus doesn't deny that this will come eventually. He just says, you know, hey, it's not for you to know. That it's not your problem. It's not what you're supposed to focus on. Rather, he says, your concern, your focus is the kingdom of God And that concerns the whole earth and all people, not just Israel. And what the disciples still didn't realize at this time was that their their scope is really too small. You know, it's almost like they're they're cherry-picking scriptures, and they're not thinking uh, just of the whole. Jesus is not simply the king of Israel, but according to Psalm 2, the king of Israel becomes the king of the world. Right? Right? The king of Israel uh, reign goes from Jerusalem, and this good news of his cosmic reign is proclaimed to all, beginning in Jerusalem and spreading from there to the ends of the earth. And we talked about this a little bit last week, about the victory of Jesus and the end of the exile and the overthrowing of the power behind the power. And these are some themes that are, I mean, this is like Bible deep tracks, right? Um, actually, funny story. I mean, if you, deep tracks. Should I tell this story? Probably not. It's such a waste of time. Um, I just watched the Bohemian Rhapsody movie. Anybody see that? Everybody's like, what are you talking about? Maurice and Scott. That's right. In the house. So I just watched this movie, and uh, I've listened to Queen my whole life, and yeah, every, I think everybody enjoys Queen. When Bohemian Rhapsody comes on, I mean, who doesn't, like, get into the operatic thing, right? Um, but I went back and I started listening to the Queen's first record, their second record, and I never realized how rock and roll Queen was. Like, these are the deep tracks. Like, true Queen lover knows, Queen lover knows, early Queen is like Zeppelin. It's rock and roll. So, deep tracks, right? The, the Bible has deep tracks as well. Like, stuff that you kind of got to go back and, and, and dig for it. But there's these deep themes that are going on. Now, Luke... He writes about Jesus, and, and he writes the gospel for the nations. But there's this deep, big theme that's going on in the book of Luke, and I just want to highlight it for a, me- for a moment. So the message of Luke is God being king through Jesus 
And that kingdom coming into conflict with the kingdoms of this world, uh, depicted in the world power of Rome. I mean, just think about how the, the gospel of Luke starts. We're told that a king is being born. Uh, he's the king of the Jews, and immediately Herod, the king who has been put in place by Rome, he knows his kingdom is threatened. He knows that the, the Messiah coming to power means the end of his kingdom, and it means the end of the power of Rome. He knows that. And so immediately what happens in the story of Jesus' birth, Herod sends out his soldiers to destroy the messianic king. To, to just nip it in the bud. This, is, this revolution is not even going to start. He's going to stop it. And all throughout the book of Luke, we see the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world um, seen in Rome coming in to conflict with one another. Now, as Luke's gospel account unfolds, we see through the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, the overthrowing of the powers behind the powers. We talked about this last week. And the rule of the, and, and the, rule of the world and the establishment of God's kingdom. Now, in the book of Acts, and we are going to talk a little bit more about Acts itself, we see this kingdom being proclaimed. I said this a couple weeks ago, but the message of the early church was not, hey, Jesus died, you can have your sins forgiven, so you can go to heaven when you die. That was not their message. Jesus' death is how we got into the good news, how we get into the good news of God, how we get into God's kingdom reign. Jesus died to break open the gates of heaven. But the proclamation of the early church was Jesus is king. He's the true ruler of this world, and his kingdom is coming into power. Get on board. It's like, you know, a couple years ago, everybody was talking about, you know, get on the right side of history, right? And all these movements throughout time and history have come along. You know, the Enlightenment, get on the right side of history. Science and reason are going to bring us into the new age. You know, get on the, the, get on the right side of history. You know, women are the future. Get on the right side of history. You know, um, transgenderism is the, is the future. Get on, the, get on board. You don't want to be on the wrong side of history. Well, you know what? The Bible also has a narrative and a message. And it says, I'm sorry, Jesus is actually the true ruler of the world. And and unless we get into his kingdom, we will indeed, not just a matter of opinion, will indeed be on the wrong side of history. And that's why this message is to be proclaimed to every tribe, tongue, nation, and people because God loves humans. Humans that are messed up sexually, whether that is same-sex attraction, that's transgenderism and confusion, whether that is addiction and slavery, whether that is simply selfishness. God loves people, and he wants to heal and redeem people, and he wants to bring them into his kingdom. That's what the kingdom of God is. It's healing for the world. It's healing for all people. And see, you guys, this is what the early church went out and proclaimed. Jesus is king, not Caesar. The world is not going to experience universal peace through Caesar. No, it will only experience true peace through King Jesus. And something that's beautiful about the book of Acts is this just again and again and again. Everybody's talking about this. I mean, it's Paul preaching, uh, excuse me, Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, or it's Paul in Athens at Mars Hill with the philosophers of the day. 
they're proclaiming Jesus is king. It's table servants or waiters like Stephen or Philip. It's Priscilla. She's a tent maker, a merchant. It's the apostle Paul. Everyone who's, it doesn't matter if you're great or small, everyone is telling everyone about the rule and reign of Jesus the king. And, and I love the word that um, Luke chooses to use about the way they spread the message, but the word is that the church gossiped the message of the gospel. Isn't that interesting? It's like, you know, sun, tabloid kind of thing. You know what I mean? It's just like, hey, this is, I mean, obviously that, does anybody know what I'm talking about? It's so dark in here. I asked Nikolai, I asked Nikolai to turn on the lights. I'm like, hey, when I go up, turn on the lights. And then he just split. I don't know where he went. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. Um, if somebody wants to hit the lights, I, you'd be awesome in my book. Um, I just, I need to read the faces, you know, see who's with me. But they gossiped the gospel. There it is. Let there be light. Um, they gossiped the gospel. They just spread this news when they were at, you know, the, the, the pub or they were at the market. It just, this is just what people were talking about. Hey, have you heard? Jesus is king. Have you heard about this Jesus, the true king of the world? And they were just talking about it, spreading the message in this way. And the book of Acts chronicles how this proclamation of God's rule goes to the ends of the earth. And at the end of Acts, it is being proclaimed under the nose of Caesar, the emperor of Rome. It's, it, the, the gospel has come to the epicenter of the world. It's gone out to the edges of, the, of the, the empire at that time and then gone to the epicenter of the world. And listen to what, how Acts closes. It says, he, Paul, lived there in Rome two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him. Now listen to this. Proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the kingship of Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Luke is, is trying to tell us something, guys. The kingdom of God has come into conflict with the Roman powers, and nothing can stop it. It's there in Rome, and it's steamrolling. It's going forward, and people are being brought into the kingdom of God, and the signs of the kingdom of God are breaking in on the empire in Rome. It's that vision in Daniel. Remember when Daniel sees that image that's, that's, that's made, and it represents all the nations of this world, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, there's this rock that's made without hands, and it slams into this image, and it crushes this image to powder, and then the wind blows, and all of a sudden, it's like, gone. Like you can't even find a a speck of dust of this image. It's wiped away and then that rock becomes a mountain that fills the whole earth. This is the vision being fulfilled in Acts. The kingdom of God is taking over. It's being established and the kingdoms of this world will be forgotten. All the harm and evil that they brought about will be forgotten because of the glory of the kingdom to come. And this is the message of the gospel that the church took up and proclaimed. Jesus is king and nothing can stop the advancement of the kingdom of God. That's what Paul says there in Romans. Oh, it looks like we're being given over to the sword. It looks like we're just at the bottom of all of this. We're being crushed. We're being persecuted. He says, no, you don't understand. In all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other thing that's been created will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And God's love is obviously displayed in the cross, but his determination to make the world whole again, to remove the curse. Nothing can stop that. So this was the commission of Jesus. Take this. Spread this. To take, to take the message of Jesus' lordship to the ends of the earth until he returns. Jesus says it in Matthew, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Oh, no, I'm sorry, I'm reading Acts again. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. I love what Leslie Newbegin says. He says this, The church is the pilgrim people of God. It's on the move, hastening to the ends of the earth to beseech all people to be reconciled to God and hastening to the end of time to meet its Lord who will gather all into one. The church cannot be understood rightly except in perspective, which is at once missionary and also eschatological, meaning considering the end, the culmination of the kingdom of God. We are a missionary people. We are a people who were, you know, Christians in past days used to, they, they thought about this theme a lot. We're sojourners. We're, we're, we're Bedouins. We're travelers. This world, and, and I think sometimes we got into dualism with this, but this world is not our home. And I think what they really mean is the world the way it is is not the way it's supposed to be. And we're not settling into and accepting the way that the world is. But we are sojourning. We're looking for that city that has foundation, whose builder and maker is Christ. And church, we need to take up this missionary identity once again. That the reason we gather, the reason we live the way that we live, the reason that we interact with one another the way that we do, is because of the gospel. It's because of the kingdom of God. That that is our mission, to live out that kingdom and then to spread the news of that kingdom and to spread the life of that kingdom. We need to get back to this missionary identity and this missionary calling. Of course, Reading the book of Acts, right? The implication is we have got to get this message of Jesus being the king out to people near and, and far. The, the closing chapter of Acts, have you ever noticed? It's, it's open-ended. Like, the story's not done. There he is, Paul. He's in Rome, and the word of God is going forward. And so it's like, okay, reader, what will you do? Will you take up the mantle? Will you take up the mission that Paul took up, that Peter took up, that Priscilla and Aquila took up, and Apollos and uh, Chloe and all of these different saints of the New Testament church? Will you take up that mission of Jesus? Will you tell your neighbors and demonstrate to your neighbors what the kingdom is like? See, it wasn't just the call of the early church But it's the call of the church in every age to spread the message of the good news of God's reign in every generation. Now, when we take 
Acts chapter 1, and I think we combine it with Matthew, we see that there's also this focus, not just on spreading the good news, but also in, on incarnating the kingdom of God. And Jesus here, or Matthew, rather, he, he adds this element of discipling and teaching to our missionary call. So we're not just called to be evangelists, people that just tell everyone else, like, hey, something has happened, something has happened, hey, God's kingdom is breaking in, but we are to train others. And of course, our lives are to be a demonstration of what that kingdom looks like. I really think that if you look at Acts and Matthew together, that this great commission, we have a recommissioning or a renewal of the Genesis creation mandate. Remember there in Genesis, God commands Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply to rule the earth and to fill it with covenant partners, with image bearers of God. Well, Jesus redefines this mission, and he tells his, his new creation, his new people, he says, go into all the world, to all nations, and proclaim that I'm king. Disciple people now in my image as covenant partners who will do righteousness, justice, and bring about God's kingdom peace on earth. Remember, in our teaching on creation, I liken the Garden of Eden to to Normandy in World War II. And Eden was God's plot of land that he claimed for himself. And from there, by co-laboring with Adam and Eve, with humanity, his kingdom was to spread to the ends of the earth. Well, this is what God is doing again. He has brought about new creation through the work of Jesus Christ. He has made new image bearers, those who are now in the image of Jesus, and he invites us to co-labor with him, to spread his kingdom from wherever we are. For them it was Jerusalem, for us it's Santa Rosa, from here to the ends of the earth. It's these same themes coming up again and again in Scripture. God is commissioning his redeemed people to co-labor. And that, I think that's really something that we have forgotten as the church. That God doesn't just bring about his kingdom. He's not just like, okay, I'm going to do it. You sit back and watch and just, you know, let it happen. God says, no, I'm going to do this. Through you. I'm going to use you just as the plan in the beginning was to use Adam and Eve. That God isn't just saying, hey, watch me spread the border of Eden. Check it out. Watch me do more creation in the world, just like I did when you weren't here, right? He doesn't do that. And also in the book of Acts with the new creation, God doesn't do that. And so often what we find in the church are we just have spectators. People that come along and we're just kind of watching what God is doing and thinking like, okay, well, God needs to do this. Gosh, our city's broken. God needs to do something. And God's like, yeah, let's do something. Get on board. Come on. Talk about that more in just a second. But I love the way, and I know I've quoted this a thousand times. You've probably heard me say it. I love the way Eugene Peterson defines the church. And I think this is the way we need to, de- to start defining it in our community. He says, the Holy Spirit formed the church to be a colony of heaven in the country of death. Remember last week when we were talking about miracles that that Jesus did, miracles that the apostles did. These were not just 
miraculous signs of power. These were displays of God's kingdom breaking into earth. Signs. This is what God's kingdom looks like. It brings healing. It brings joy. It brings hope. Church, this is what we are to be about. To bring healing, to bring joy, and to bring hope to a country of death. To a land that sits in darkness and decay. Into a land where there is darkness and therefore there is confusion about the meaning and purpose of life. There's confusion about fulfillment and desire. We are to be a colony of heaven in the country of death. He goes on to say the church is, listen to this, the core element in the strategy of the Holy Spirit for providing human witness and physical presence to the, king, to the Jesus-inaugurated kingdom of God in this world. Stop. Like, that is a mouthful. Like, that, that's a brain buster, right? Okay, the, church, the Holy Spirit, this is his strategy. Do you remember when we were doing the Sermon on the Mount? And Jesus is like, you people are the salt of the earth. And you can just imagine that crowd. They're like, there's no way. Like, me? There's no way. Like, what about the temple? What about the Torah? What about the Pharisees? What about the Essenes? What about the Sadducees? What about anybody else with credentials? And Jesus says, no, you motley crew, you are the salt of the earth, and you are the light of the world. You, church, not just refuge, obviously, but the church, every local gathering, is the key strategy of the Holy Spirit to show people what God's kingdom looks like, to show people what the king looks like. This is our high calling, church. Provide human witness and physical presence to the Jesus-inaugurated kingdom of God in this world. He goes on to say, it's not the kingdom complete, but it is a witness of that kingdom. The church is appointed gathering of named people in particular places who practice a life of resurrection in a world in which death gets the biggest headlines. The practice of resurrection is an intentional, deliberate decision to believe and participate in resurrection life. Life out of death, life that trumps death, life that is the last word, Jesus life. Church, that's what we're doing. That's what Act 5 is all about. Being parables of Jesus, being signs and signposts of the kingdom of God, being billboards for the kingdom of God. Now, as I said, there are many things we can say about the church, important things that the Bible teaches about the body, the church being the body of Jesus Christ, filled with his Holy Spirit, the church being a family, the new family of God, the church being the temple of the living God. But it seems to me that the the fundamental identity of the church is to carry on the mission of Jesus to proclaim the kingdom of God and to live out those kingdom principles and characteristics in every area of daily existence. The problem is many of us who call ourselves Christians and are committed to the gathering of the local church 
are simply not engaged with the kingdom mission of Jesus at all. We're just not. We come here, we partake of the teaching or maybe of the community, but we aren't living out the kingdom. We aren't even living in hope of the kingdom. The headlines have the strings of our, the headlines of the news have the strings of our heart more than the kingdom of God does. Our bank accounts have the strings to our heart more than the kingdom of God does. And the list goes on and on and on. And it shows what we're really desiring, what we're really seeking, what we're really building. If we are Jesus's people, the call goes out to us, get on board with the kingdom of God, with the Jesus-inaugurated kingdom. See, we crave and seek comfort, affirmation. We're living our lives in a seemingly moral way. We're just trying to make our way in this world. We want our sins forgiven. We want to go to heaven when we die. But anything more is a bit much, too much responsibility or strain on our lifestyle, on our freedom, on our goals. Can I just say candidly to you, you are living a secular Western narrative and you are not living the Jesus life. You are not living out the sacrificial death of the kingdom of God. You're just not. This isn't to guilt people. It's just to say what it is. It's black and white. Either you live your life as a reflection of the gospel of what Jesus has done, bearing the sins of the world, forgiving, living at peace with people, living in hope of the resurrection and the new life to come, or you don't. It's that simple. And yet we have blurred the line so much in our culture to say, oh, no, 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 all these people that basically just do whatever they want, they're in Jesus' kingdom too. Not according to the Bible. Not according to the church in the New Testament. These people put aside their identity, their own mission, their own purposes, and says, no, instead I will take up the kingdom. And I may think that all of these things are right and all these things are good, but I am going to critique those in light of the work of Jesus and in light of the kingdom of God. Now, I'm not saying that, like, you're stuck and that you're done and you're the way that you are, but I'm saying that there has to be this, this fundamental shift in the church to reclaim the identity of the mission of Jesus and the identity of building the kingdom of God rather than just carrying on the agenda of our culture and, or the agenda of our county and the status quo. You people are the salt of the earth. You people are the light of the world. Here's what I think the problem is. Can I just say? And like I haven't already been saying, right? Can I be honest with you? Can I smack you with the other side of my hand? I think... That as Western Christians, we have forgotten that the world is under the curse of sin. We live at a very peaceful time in society. I know that, like, you know, you get into politics and it's mayhem. I know that stuff going on, uh, just local politics is mayhem. I mean, you look at our city, gosh, like fires, you look at the floods now, you look at what's going on with homelessness, 
We just had a meeting uh, the other day at Bayside just about foster care because of just the great needs that are going on because of just family breakdown and stuff like that. But we are really living at a time where we can, we can live insulated lives where we can choose to ignore and avoid those things. We can choose to ignore the curse of sin and the effects of sin in the world. And I think by and large, the Western church does that. But remember the narrative that we have been following. Humans were created by God for fellowship with him, were made for him, for his presence, for his love, and to life and meaning are only ultimately found in God. We were created to live under God's rule and reign. We are created for uh, collaboration with God, for partnership with him, to be in covenant with him, to build his kingdom. Whether that was Genesis or whether that's now, Acts chapter 1, Matthew 28. We're made to live under the rule of God and under his good rule. Remember, humanity lived there in the garden. Adam and Eve are both naked and there's no shame. There's nothing to hide. There's transparency, authenticity, and no fear of exposure because there's no sin. This is true flourishing. This is how life works best. But because of sin, the Bible says we're separated from God. Humans' lives are in disarray. The world is chaotic and a dark place filled with so much evil, so much confusion and meaninglessness. And not only that, because we're separated from our true home in God, in Eden, and in his presence, we're constantly seeking after that. We're desiring the kingdom, but we're we're making like you know, our own models and prototypes of the kingdom, they won't do. They won't meet your heart desire. If you step back and actually think about it, look at it, and see what's going on in our culture, we live in a world that is lost. We live in a world that is hopeless. You guys, the Western secular narrative says, you came from nowhere. You're an accident. Your life has no meaning except what you put on it, what you decide. I'm special because I don't pick whatever you want. And life is going nowhere. When I die, they'll put me in the ground. Maybe I'll evaporate and become one with the universe. I don't know. Pantheism is becoming more and more prevalent in our society. There was this, we went to the movies yesterday, and there's this, like, new dog movie that's coming out. And the whole movie's about reincarnation. I'm just like, what? Like, your same dog just keeps coming back to you in different types. It's a chihuahua one day, you know, and he dies, and then you get a St. Bernard, you know? And just like, and the, the dog follows you, and he's your spirit guide through this world to protect you. And, be, and I'm just like, what? is this right choose your own adventure what happens i don't know who knows but here's the here's the big thrust of the western secular narrative your life's meaningless therefore life is hopeless we have nothing to hope in we have nothing to work and labor for we're lost we're hopeless life is meaningless and it's darkness the bible says Quite the opposite. No, you were created by God. You were created for God. And your life will be meaningless, hopeless, 
dark and lost as long as you keep rejecting him. But he's looking for you. He's after you. He wants you, and he wants to give you meaning, and he wants to give you purpose and identity and fulfillment. All of this is found in God and in his kingdom. And we, church, have the incredible privilege to proclaim in word and deed the message of God's rescue to those who are lost, his light to those who sit in darkness, and infinite meaning and purpose to those under the weight of our culture's meaningless, hopeless, secular narrative. That we have a privilege to do this, to co-labor with God. Paul says this, for Christ's love compels us. We look at the cross and we look at what the Son of God, who was in infinite glory, what he did. That he became sin. He became the one that we won't even look at. His face was beaten to a bloody pulp. He was hung there naked. He was peed on, slapped in the face, mocked, beaten. He became sin for us in order that we might become the righteousness of God. Paul says that love for what God did for us, rebels, those who outrightly reject God, that love compels us. He says, we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all have died. Listen to this. And he died for all, not so that you can find your best self, so that you can be all that you wanted to be. No. That those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. I've said this before, but the Christian message is not that in Jesus you find your true self. No, in the Christian message, God goes on a rescue mission to find you and to make you into what he created you to be because you're lost, you're hopeless, and your life is meaningless without him. Church, he died for all that those who live should live no longer for themselves. The gospel compels us to live that way. That's what the gospel is meant to do. When it goes into your head, it's meant to reach down into your heart and say, my life is not my own. My life is to live out the Jesus story until he comes again. Now, let me just say this as we're wrapping up. When I say advancing the kingdom or taking up the mission of Jesus, I know that some of us just automatically go to spiritual things like, okay, yeah, Char, I know, I, I need to pray more. Uh, I need to read more. I need to do more street evangelism. I don't know why street evangelism. It's like everybody's like, street evangelism. Yeah. Oh, gosh. And you're like, where? Where? Go out to the street and tell them. You know, it's just like, this isn't what the early church did. They weren't just like on the side of the road like, hey, 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 can I talk to you just for a minute? I've got this thing I want to tell you about. Hey, can I just like just interrupt your day and everything you're doing? No. In places of work. In the universities, in the places of learning, people are talking about this stuff. Word on the street. And they're just like, hey, here's the word on the street. Let me tell you about the real word on the street. Let me tell you about something really significant. Let me tell you some really, really great news about something that's going to radically change the course of history and the course of your life. We always do that, right? That may be true. I don't know about street evangelism, but maybe. Uh, These 
are and can be helpful tools in training us to desire and seek the kingdom and to be more like Jesus in very practical ways. But the kingdom of heaven is a healed material universe. Therefore, doing kingdom work is as vast as the world is wide. It's as vast as the world is wide. And let me just summarize what I think this looks like. Remember that line that we sing uh, at Christmas time? Everybody's favorite Christmas song, Joy to the World, right? My kids are still singing it, and it's, what is it, March? And then and they're singing Jingle Bells still, and we're like, no, no more. But there's this line from Joy to the World, and it's one of my favorite lines in all the Christmas songs. No more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He, Jesus, comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. So here's what I think kingdom mission looks like. Church, wherever you see the effects of the curse of sin, you see brokenness, abuse, family breakdown, divorce, loneliness, poor, injustice, meaninglessness, and the list goes on. It is into the lives of these people and these situations that we are to bring the light and truth in word and deed of the glorious good news of the kingdom of God. It's like a vacuum, right? If you found out that China didn't have bubble gum, hmm, the Chinese do not know the phenomena of, you know, blowing a bubble and having it splat on your face. Like, okay, wait a second. There's a vacuum here for the market. What are you going to do? You're going to buy a bunch of bubble gum? You're going to import it to China, to every market there, and you're going to make a billion bucks, probably more, right? Make an investment in the kingdom of God. If you know that this is what God is going to transform the whole world into this one day, as we invest in the kingdom of God, God says, I will make you a ruler over many things, invest in my kingdom. I, I, I will bless you. I will prosper you as you do this. Invest in the kingdom of God. Look at those vacuums in the world and invest kingdom characteristics, kingdom signs into these voids, into these places of darkness and sin. Do righteousness. Make peace. Bring joy and hope upon those who are under the weight of depression and meaningless. Do justice. Sacrifice your time, money, and resources for the betterment of others. Bring healing and hope where it's not found. Bring kindness to bear upon others. Be human with other humans. I love this quote from Michael Goheen, his book, The Drama of Scripture. He says, seeking the kingdom or witness will mean embodying God's renewing power in politics and citizenship, economics and business, education and scholarship, family and neighborhood, media and art, leisure and play. It is not just that we carry out evangelism in these areas. This is important, but not enough. It means That the way we live as citizens, consumers, students, husbands, wives, mothers, fosters, fathers, sisters, brothers, and friends witness to the restoring power of God. The way we live our lives are a witness to the restoring power of God. As followers of Jesus, I mean, gosh, you guys, when you look at the 
story of Jesus, when you look at the, the story of the early church, we cannot live lives of insulation and comfort. Do you notice how Jesus always moves towards suffering? How the apostles in the early church always move towards suffering. They're always moving towards people, not moving away from it, not insulating their lives from it. They're moving towards it. They don't ignore it. Because of God's great love for us, he moved towards our suffering. He embraced our self-inflicted suffering and bore our sin at the cross. Everywhere Jesus went, he relieved the suffering of those around him. And when he would do this, he would say things like this, the kingdom of God has been brought near to you. I love that. He brought the kingdom to bear upon people's suffering and their sin. And you see this, I don't know if you guys have done any church history, but the early church, there's a story about when the plagues begin to hit the Roman Empire. That uh, Romans, people who had even persecuted the church, whoa, wake up. Uh, they actually begin to put their dead outside of their door, or not their dead, they uh, begin to put their diseased outside of their door because, I mean, it might have been bubonic plague, they don't actually really know what it was, but whatever it was, it was spreading, so they were just putting the diseased people outside of their door, like, uh, we we can't take care of our family members anymore, our loved ones anymore, like, they're going to kill us. It was the church that went around, and they gathered up all the people who were dying of the bubonic plague, and they nursed them. That's where hospice began, actually, with the church. You know, hospitals were birthed out of the church. Education was carried on by the church. Arts, all this stuff was carried on by the church. But the early skeptics of the church said things like this. See how they love one another. And they even love our people, people that aren't part of their tribe. What What kind of love is this? The early church was incarnating the kingdom of God. Summarizing C.S. Lewis, he said this. He said, if you realize that Jesus is going to someday destroy hunger, disease, poverty, injustice, and death, it makes Christianity a fighting religion, he said. Whether we are confronted with a city slum or a cancer ward, The things that are now wrong with the material world, God wants to put right. It's a fighting religion. We see the effects of sin, and we're fighting. We're pushing back sin. We're salt. We're light. We're foretaste of the kingdom of God. And that's really what I think the church is all about. I don't know what that crackle is. So let me just summarize as we close this morning. The church is to be a foretaste of the kingdom of God. The church is where Jesus Christ is currently reigning on earth. That's the proclamation, Jesus is king. It's then where his people live in subjection and awe to his kingly reign, right? Jesus is a king, so we obey him. We obey, he says, this is my word. Show me that you love me by obeying my word. The church is not the kingdom of God, but is pictured as an embassy of God's kingdom. It's where God's kingship and reign is realized, where God's laws and principles are upheld in praise. It's where God's kingdom citizens receive instruction and from where they are sent out into the world as ambassadors and witnesses of God's kingdom. The church are Jesus' people 
who through word and deed testified to the Jesus story and kingdom of God until he comes to reign in a new heaven and a new earth, world without end. Church, if you have lost sight of that, I think today the Holy Spirit is inviting you to lay aside whatever distraction, whatever has gotten a hold of your heart, just to lay that aside and say, you know what? I'm going to take up the mission of Jesus. I'm going to find my story in the Jesus story. I'm going to find my identity solely as one loved and redeemed by God. Right? Someone that's been rescued. That's what the Holy Spirit is inviting us to do and inviting us to do each and every day in the most mundane, practical of ways. Eye contact, smile, just hospitality, politeness, carefulness and consideration of others with, you know, the checker at the grocery store, with your mechanic, with your employees or your employer or whoever. Be intentional. Be human with other humans. Show them that somewhere out there, there's a God that cares deeper than how their weekend was or what's going on on Netflix. There's a God that cares deeply for them and wants to heal their lives and wants to do a deep work of healing in our community. The Holy Spirit invites us this morning to center our life on the king and the kingdom. And so that's what we're going to do now, right? You know, communion can be celebrated in a myriad of ways. And I love how in the Gospel of John, Jesus' communion service that he holds there before the Last Supper, he says, eat my body, and drink my blood. And then he translates that into this, abide with me. Take his life, take it in. Drink it down. May it become a part of you. This is an invitation, church, to center our lives back on the person and story of Jesus, to find our story in his. And so I pray that you would do that this morning, that you would examine that as we take communion together, you would say, okay, Lord, in in what ways have I just neglected the kingdom? In which ways am I just hyper-spiritualizing the kingdom? Lord, bring me back to the story of Jesus. Help me to live that out. Help me to see what you see. Help me to hear from you so I can say and be for others what you want to say and what you want to be for others. And he'll do that. God will answer that prayer. And do that again tomorrow morning and do that Tuesday morning and just do that each day. And you'll begin to see the Lord transforming your life. You'll begin to see the Lord transforming your community around you because God wants to rescue people. God wants to heal people. And he's invited us to take part in that. So Lord... How incredible it is, Jesus, that you invite sinners, Lord, some good, some really bad, Lord, some broken, some really broken, but you invite each and every one of us, Lord, to join you, to be a part of your mission, to share an identity with you. Lord, that we can say the spirit of the Lord God is upon me and the Lord has anointed me 
to proclaim the good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. What a privilege, what an honor. And we pray, Lord, that it would be your great love for us that would compel us, that would drive us. Jesus, you did this for us. How can we hold back sharing about just your beauty, your person, your work? Give us boldness. Lord, help us to see the world the way it really is. Still under the curse, waiting to be redeemed, waiting to be renewed. Help us to see humans the way that you see them. We're lost in darkness, but dearly loved. And so, Lord, we would share with them that good news. We would display for them that good news. So, Lord, we... We ask you to do this, Lord, and I pray, Lord, now we would begin to co-labor with you, Lord, even in this act of communion, Lord, that this would be an act of faith, a declaration we're taking in your life, Jesus, so that it might be lived out through us. I pray this in your name. Amen.